Sligo O'Toole podcast is sponsored by Queen's University Belfast. Researchers at Queen's are at the heart of supporting global efforts to understand the coronavirus. To discover more about their research, please visit qeb.ac.uk. Welcome to the Sligo O'Toole In Conversation podcast. My name is Brian O'Neill and my guest today is Michael McCoy. Michael is a native of Belfast, but he now lives in Japan, where he works as an executive coach. Michael, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Brian. Great to be with you. Yeah. So it's um, Japan's a, is an awful long way from the from the Orma Road, mm-hmm. where where you where you were born. Now I think um, you can you maybe give us a bit of a quick bio. Did did you study at university in Belfast, or where did you go, or mm. what was the? Um, I after St Mary's, I went up to the new University of Ulster, as it was then. And um, my studies have continued into, oh, um, for example, uh, York Business School, um, Mm -hmm. where I was studying uh, change leadership, for example. Um, But as you know yourself, studies never, never, never end. We're we're constantly updating. Um, So, yeah. yeah. I would say so. I mean, you went to, up to Coleraine. Was that was that when was that was that the late seventies, early eighties? That would have been in eighty three. Yeah, eighty three. Uh-huh. So I imagine getting out of Belfast in nineteen eighty three would be a, a bit of a change of change of scene. It was indeed. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Um. Well, I suppose the the, the obvious question is. Um, why did you you leave Belfast? I mean, it's it's in a way it, it's kind of um, it's not too obvious because there's a, a small minor civil war taking place, so there's very good reason to leave. <laughs> indeed, <laughs> but, indeed. Yeah. But I suppose, I mean, did, uh-huh. just for younger listeners who maybe didn't grow up in the Troubles, I mean, can you give us an yeah. idea of, of what Belfast was like when you, when you were growing up back in those times? Mm-hmm. Well, um, as we've discussed before, Brian, I would have been traveling across town in order to. To get to school, um, which was St Mary's, um, first of all in Barrack Street, and then on Midland Road, which um, geographically is on top of the falls. And this sometimes, you know, if if the buses weren't running, and quite often they weren't, um, because maybe there were riots or a bomb scare somewhere, it did mean actually traversing and um, territory which might have been a wee bit hairy back in those times. Um, so um, a Catholic maybe going through loyalist territory or something like that. Um, but, you know, as long as, uh, I, I guess, as long as we were able to camouflage ourselves, unfortunately, the uh, school uniform was pretty neutral. I didn't have to wear a badge on my blazer, for example. Um, so I was I was quite lucky in that I was able to uh, get through uh, some of the more interesting areas at the time. A lot of adrenaline running, um, but this holds us in good stead for uh, other things in life. There, there wasn't there wasn't much uh, childhood obesity back then when you had to walk everywhere. <laughs> indeed, indeed, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, so then, from uh, you went to York, that's obviously in England, and then from there mm-hmm. it was a career in the business world. Yes, yes. Um, so 
I found myself in Japan um, out of curiosity more than anything else um, in the uh, early 90s. And they were just coming off the tail end of uh, the bubble era at the time, the famous bubble, um, where they had this huge uh, real estate bubble. And um, well, money seemed to be falling from trees at the time. Um, it was a surreal time. Uh, unfortunately, uh, a couple of years later, maybe I was to blame, um, the bubble burst. And this had uh, tremendous ramifications on uh, society, on the economy, of course. And we've had the uh, lost decades in Japan, decades of uh, deflation, for example, ever since. And is, is that still the case? Is deflation still an issue? Um, not so much an issue anymore. Um, official policy is to uh, create some inflation, and we've seen consumer prices go up with um, consumer tax hikes. So VAT has gone from 5% maybe 20 years ago to 8%, and now it's up to 10%, um, which still, um, by European levels, it's very, very low. Um, but people here will obviously uh, complain about that yeah so so there is some inflation yeah we do see it creeping into consumer prices taxi fares etc etc yeah which is a good thing it's um i suppose you could put your your uh, psychology head on and, and, and think is is there something about moving from one of the most uh troubled places in the world with, with Belfast you're in the troubles to, to uh -huh. Japan which has a reputation of being quite calm and structured and ordered <laughs> yeah. is, there, is, there, is there something in that or was it just kind of more by, by accident you ended up there um, well first of all it was curiosity for a country mm -hmm. which hadn't actually be, been colonised by one of the European powers um, that's something that fascinated me and uh, counterintuitively um, it's actually quite noisy here. So for all of the calm and everything, uh, and perhaps uh, it's because there there aren't uh, so many scary noises, I guess, like like um, explosions and and gunshots and things like that. Uh, that that actually uh, for me it seemed um, yeah. It, it was a, a little bit of a stressor because Belfast is, is a very, very quiet place. And even during the Troubles, it was an extremely quiet place, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder, is it something maybe yeah. to do with the geography, you know, in the mountains, the kind of cushion noise or maybe greenery or, or what? Uh, yeah. uh, possibly, yeah. Arts and of course, is. population density. Because yeah. um, so, you, you, you're yeah. living in Tokyo, is it? Uh, in the suburbs of Tokyo, yeah. Because Tokyo is, is ginormous. I mean, what, what's the population of Tokyo uh, these days? Four, 14 million. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, so that's twice, almost twice Ireland itself. Yeah, just in yeah. one place. Yeah. Um, and the scale of living, but I suppose like anywhere else, it, it, it's kind of subdivided into its local communities, is it? I mean, is there like, yeah. Yeah. like, like uh -huh. London, you get like a little mini village or town within a city indeed indeed and um the great thing about tokyo is that there are these separate little villages with their own distinct uh, 
personalities, their own distinct identities, and great for exploring, whether you're a tourist or, or whether you've lived in Tokyo all your life. Um, it's always lots of fun. Hmm. And would they be curious of, of, I mean, is, is there a lot of Westerners living in Tokyo or is it still quite a, a rare sight? Um, it would be rare enough. And it might be rarer actually following recent, um, I guess, business risks related to COVID-19, where um, there has been a travel ban for uh, even people with per permanent residency who are non-Japanese, mm -hmm. uh, while at the same time, Japanese people have been free to come and go. Um, I, for example, would have been free to leave Japan um, but I wouldn't have been able to get back into Japan. And obviously, when we're running businesses, um, that is a, a little bit of a worry, to say, to say the least. Yeah. Got it. Um, and on the subject of, of COVID, because um, I know there's a lot of surprise mm -hmm. in the West that um, Japan's numbers are quite low, because as you said, you know, it's quite a dense population. But yep. I think you were explaining that, um, do you know the, the history of like masks and, and things like that? Maybe if you just explain that yep. for the listeners. Sure, sure. So um, after the war, uh, there was a reforestation scheme nationally, which particularly in the Tokyo area involved planting lots of cedar trees. And the pollen from cedar is particularly nasty. And as a consequence, even I feel it, and, and normally I, I, I'm uh, pretty immune to uh, hay fever. Uh, but uh, typically each spring, you'll see lots and lots and lots of people, perhaps 60% uh, of the people on trains, etc., wearing masks because of the hay fever. Um, mm -hmm. You also have a habit or a custom of wearing a mask if you have a cold so that you don't actually share your cold with anybody else. Um, that ties in a little bit with presenteeism, which is an issue here, uh, where mm -hmm. somebody would rather uh, go into the office with a mask on rather than take the day off to uh, cure their cold. But that's another issue. Uh, so getting back to the uh, hay fever, um, fortunately, this coincided with the first wave of COVID. And so I think it definitely mitigated in terms of the numbers that we saw here. Okay. Well, uh, uh, that's, that, that's similar to our experiences and that it was coming into spring and we had a bizarrely good weather for the entire period of the kind of mm. lockdown. It was like almost mm. sunshine every day. So I think it is kind of fortuitous, um, that, that it hit when it did. Mm -hmm. Hard up will work yeah. if there's a, a second wave. I'm not too sure. Mm. Um, then you're also saying that because Japanese people they, they bow and they, they don't shake hands, and then they they wouldn't tend to be quite affectionate anyway. When they're not they're not really huggy kissy mm. people. Yeah, certainly not um, touchy feely like we might be ourselves, Brian. Um, mm. However, uh, well, the love is expressed in in other ways. Um, in, in working for people and, and doing things for people. Um, so, so that same human love exists there, um, simply the expression is different. 
Um, so unlike ourselves or Italians or, or Spaniards, what have you, um, we don't have a lot of body contact here. And typically the distance between people uh, is, is that much greater, um, which is an counterintuitive in, in, in such a dense population. And it may be as a result of the dense population, people, people enjoy their personal space when conversing, for example. Yeah, so they might already be um, unconsciously social distancing. Hmm. They, they have a large body bubble. Yeah, yeah. Typically a meter apart. Yeah. So this could okay. be contributing to it as well. Yeah, and then also the the fact that the population tend to be quite ordered and responsive to authority kind kind of helps, I suppose, when you when you're doing mm -hmm. lockdowns. Because if you look at America, which America is kind of they they take the heart the whole kind of freedom and liberty and they yeah. utterly detest the government telling them what to do it's kind of yeah. mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's complete chaos over there really isn't it compared yeah. to yeah. more structured countries uh-huh um well actually it's 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 interesting that you say that americans detest the government telling them what to do because in japan it's the same people detest the government telling them what to do and indeed uh, legally, the government do not have that authority to actually go and tell people what to do. And uh, that's because the, their, the legal powers were limited after the end of World War II. Um, so uh, typically in Japan, ordering someone to do something is confrontational, culturally confrontational. Um, requesting that they do something um, is the way that uh, all of these uh, different um, initiatives are enacted. Um, so you you might suggest that you might hint that it would be a good idea to do something. An escalation from that would be to request that somebody does something, and then the escalation from that is a strong request to do something. Um, but in terms of police powers to arrest people, uh, like we saw in Europe. Um, that doesn't exist. Ah, that is interesting. So, so a mm. lot of the time, the structure and the authority is it based more on cohesiveness and social norms? Is that more precisely? Um, so the people police themselves, rather than the police or government pol uh, policing the people. Okay, and is that always been the case, or is, is that like since Second World War, or was it always the case beforehand? Or do you I know? think in terms of the people policing themselves, um, this goes hand in hand with a group-oriented society. And I shared some uh, cultural studies with you earlier, Brian. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there are other societies which are more stronger group oriented, um, Indonesia, Malaysia, for example, uh, and where you might see uh, even greater levels of societal pressure to conform. Yeah, but certainly um, the pressure to conform in, in Japan is, is quite high. Now, in your work advising leaders and companies and corporations, how does that transfer into, because um, the problem, I suppose, with very ordered societies mm. is does it does it stifle creativity in a way? And does that affect 
the economic performance sometimes of companies if people are less willing to criticize or suggest new methods of working do you know the kind of uh the creative industries that would that are a, a big part of the uk economy and the american economy mm-hmm. so how do, how do japanese companies handle that structure and order versus not stifling creativity mm. That's an excellent question, Brian. And how the companies do it uh, would be, yeah. Actually, some would struggle to to do that. There will be creative companies like um, the games companies and the animation houses, uh, where there would be this cult- culture of creativity. Um, and where I like to help out is in actually helping people to engage all of their stakeholders. So not just uh, the ju- not just each time speaking to the uh, more extroverted in a group, um, but listening to the introverts as well, because the introverts always have wonderful ideas. It just takes them a long time to formulate them, polish them, and actually uh, voice them. Uh, whereas the introverts, the extroverts, sorry, tends to think aloud. Um, so um, one thing that I would recommend to uh, listeners would be to Google the Abilene paradox. The Abilene paradox. Uh, Abilene is A B I L E N E. And this talks to basically um, suboptimal consensus within a group uh, where somebody suggests something and that suggestion itself isn't questioned. And they may only have been suggesting something because nobody else had any ideas. And so the group goes with that suggestion, runs with it. And I'm sure you've seen it yourself, what with mates on on a Friday or Saturday night. Somebody suggested something and um, it wasn't the crack everyone anticipated. Yeah, it's kind of when you ask people, where do you want to go to eat? You somehow always eventually decide on Italian because it's the most, you know, inoffensive. (laughs) Sure, sure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The the lowest common denominator, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And and in your work, I mean, is is the attraction of, of what you do is it giving them like uh is it helping japanese companies and leaders understand things from a like a western perspective or western management techniques or is it is it global and, and you just happen to be in japan doing the work mm. um it's basically bridging the two i guess and also creating awareness of uh, the in-betweens as well. And, and for me, myself, this is, this is a, a great learning opportunity. Um, so looking at the developing economies in the world and how to uh, make sense of them and their particular needs. And, and these are very much emerging. So we, we see what Japan looks like. We see what China looks like. We see what um, maybe some of the other Southeast Asian nations look like. Um, but we still don't have so much information about um, what Russia looks like, for example, or um, what what the developing uh, economies and some some amazing economies in Africa, for example, look like. 
Um, and I think that's the next challenge. Uh, so rather than having this Japan versus Western uh, comparison, I think we need that plus alpha uh, in order to really add value to global operations. Okay. And this can come, of course, with diversifying workforces. Mm-hmm. And I mean, for, for us, for us in Northern Ireland, um, we do tend to be quite insular, which is maybe a, a criticism, I suppose, of a lot of countries. You know, we, we don't really look too far. I mean, what, what in your experiences yeah. could we learn f- uh, from Japan that we could apply to, to Northern Ireland? Is there any kind of lessons that you, that you think we should look at? Um, certainly, um, when it comes to the cultural bit, um, we are very homogeneous in terms of the culture that we tend to consume, I believe. So um, we'll typically all watch the same television, all watch the main, the, all support the same uh, bands, for example, the, um, the, the same group of football teams. And enjoy the same comedy. Um, So Mm -hmm. if you're coming from a country outside of that cultural bubble, for want of a better word, um, it does make it quite difficult to penetrate that. You might be a very fun person yourself, um, but if your cultural references are very different, then um, actually enjoying the crack with people on a Saturday night in the pub, because of all these localized cultural references, um, this could be a bit of a challenge. Um, Mm. And so perhaps an awareness that there is a big world and a very big world and a beautiful, diverse world outside of Belfast and and, um, Western Europe. And that uh, perhaps curiosity about that. Um, I'm not saying there isn't any curiosity. Um, but perhaps a, a, a bit more curiosity about um, uh, our own space in that bigger world and how we can grow into that might be useful at the risk of sounding yeah, condescending. Mm. No, no, I understand where you're coming from because I mean, I've mm. often thought that we should probably have some kind of scheme where when, when everyone uh, leaves school that they, they kind of go, mm. go abroad for a year before they start yeah. university yeah. just to yeah. see somewhere else and experience Indeed, culture. yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, be I think, I mean, the height of, of cultural exchange in Northern Ireland tends to be uh, people from Tyrone going to university in Belfast. And, uh-huh. <laughs> and that, that's, that's basically uh-huh. as far as it goes, uh-huh. you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, um. I mean, whenever I mean, because you've been away from home, what's is near, near thirty years now? Is it? It's about that, Brian. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, what what, what do because I, I know some things we, we can be a bit down on our, ourselves in Northern Ireland, but but what do mm-hmm. you miss from home, or what do you think we we get right? In? Um, I think a lot of the social intelligence, really, um, which has held me in good stead, learning from that and how to engage people. Yeah. Um, despite the fact that, um, you know, there is that cultural point, which we mentioned earlier, um, it's a wonderful foundation. And, and of course, lots of people, lots of people have already, um, lots of companies have already taken advantage of this with, with call centers and what have you. Um, there's, there's a huge, uh, opportunity, I think, to, uh, further leverage that, 
um, in order to attract, for example, inward investment. Um, so there will be lots of opportunities, I believe. So looking at it, Europe from Japan and, and particularly the mm. UK with Brexit, yeah. I mean, mm. how do you see Brexit panning out? Because I know a lot of Japanese companies have, mm. have operations in the mm. UK. I mean, Honda, yeah. Toyota, Nissan, mm. a lot of the car companies, but also a lot of the, you know, the tech companies as well, the Sonys and mm. all this here. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, mm -hmm. is, there, is there nervousness that you're hearing in, in the corporate world in Japan or how are they viewing Brexit? Um, definitely nervousness. Um, Japan tends to be quite a risk-averse society. Um, particularly corporates, they like to um, typically take a long-term view on their investments. And something like Brexit, when that happens, and and you mentioned Honda earlier, and and we've seen how they've um, uh, shuttered Swindon. I'm not sure if they're if it's totally closed yet, um, but certainly they they made that um, decision to to leave the UK. Um, and yeah, uh, so that that risk averse element um, doesn't really contribute to uh, the situation regarding post Brexit investment in the UK. Certainly not for for Japanese investors. Yeah. Um, hmm. And there would be. Possibly questions of uh, whether the administration can be trusted, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Okay, and on that, I mean, how much of it is Brexit, and how much is the, you know, the new the new EU Japanese kind of uh, trade agreement where mm -hmm. you can there's no import taxes on, on Japanese cars. I mean, do you think Brexit is sometimes maybe a bit of an excuse for shutting somebody's Car factories? Um, I'm not sure if it's an excuse. Um, if we look at Honda's experience, um, they did actually get burned before by the management uh, buyout of, of Rover and subsequent um, sale of, of Rover to BMW, was it? Um, certainly, Mini Mini was sold to to BMW. Um, some of the other brands, MG, for example, went to China subsequently. Um, but Honda had um, invested a great deal of of cash and effort into um, reviving uh, the old British Leyland. And um, anyone who can remember back to the 1980s, late 80s, um, might remember there were excellent little Honda Civics um, badged as Triumphs at the time, oh, and okay. th they sold like hotcakes. Um, so we we had uh, things like that. Uh, that experience certainly, um, I would imagine, it was more than a catalyst for Honda's uh, decision to jump ship. Um, in terms of the rest of them, it really it really depends, and I'm not an expert here, but um, it really depends on the supply chain risk and how uh, easily the UK can uh, cope with um, the just-in-time 
manufacturing needs of Japanese and, and other organizations, particularly in automotive, where you have a supply chain yeah, that, that I mean, goes as, as... globally. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. as, as, I mean, listeners may not know, but just just in time, it is was pioneered by the Japanese companies where you, you kind of essentially keep very low inventory of, of parts. And now yeah. the cars can have several thousand or several hundred suppliers of, of parts mm-hmm. and any kind of slowdown in the chain kind of affects production lines and it has kind of knock-on consequences. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, because with Brexit, I mean, the obviously a big attraction for Japanese companies to the UK was access to the European market. So, so yeah. that is, is is essentially the concern then that they there, there could be you know trade problems or whatever, and it's affecting access to the rest of Europe. Absolutely, Brian, and I think mm-hmm. a lot of people in Tokyo will be um, quite expectant are mm. certainly um, uh, curious and more than curious to see uh, what sort of deal the UK can do with with the European Union. Um, and if if it's not as great a deal as has been uh, perhaps touted by by Westminster, um, then we might uh, we might see further uh, divestment. Uh, out of the UK. Okay, interesting. Mm. And mm. how do you? I mean, I don't know how much you you keep in, in touch with with Northern Ireland, and I know you read Slugger. Um, what what's your take on uh, the future of Northern Ireland? I mean, because we're kind of caught between two stools, you no, know, with with kind of Brexit on one side, and then there's a lot of talk of reunification, you know, within the next decade or two. So there's kind of, um, there's a mm-hmm. lot a, a lot going on. I mean, how, how would you see the kind of future of Northern Ireland working out? Um, I think that really depends, um, certainly from an economic perspective, um, looking at uh, foreign direct investment, it depends on what sort of uh, reassurances and cast iron reassurances uh, can be made uh, to non-European investors that that, for example, in Northern Ireland there will be access uh, to the to the two markets, to, to the EU, of course, and and to the UK. Mm-hmm. So that would be a sweet spot, I think, moving forward. Um, I guess, uh, and I'd. I'm conscious of John Hume's death, and he was a, a big fan of Mahatma Gandhi, of course, and, and Dr. King. Um, and to, to quote from Mahatma Gandhi, um, I guess, be the change that you wish to see in the world. Um, and John Hume really embodied that. He, he personified that, that ethos in going boldly and and uh, executing change uh, within society and and fearlessly um, fighting for um, his constituents, and I believe that um, if we can uh, get out of this mindset where we are, we do tend to be a little bit complacent. I think. Um, and I'm mindful of flights uh, 
typically the flights from Heathrow to Belfast in the 80s, 90s, et cetera, et cetera, uh, were always the most delayed. And the reason for this was because we don't complain. Yeah, or we complain much less than um, people in other uh, parts of the world might complain. Um, and there's this almost um, inferiority complex, which, which gives birth to uh, language such as, are we country? Um, which I believe um, in that small place, um, uh, less than what, 100 miles across, um, we should really try to harness, harness all of those and, and feel a lot more pride, a lot more positivity in terms of moving forward and saying, this is us, this is what we can do. Aren't we wonderful um, in terms of what we want to achieve um, in the future and, and, and work towards that? Okay. If that makes sense. Um, uh, yeah, because I mean, I mean, John Hume's famous for saying, "No, you, you can't, you can't eat a flag," and I think um, he was quite aware yeah. of the kind of practical need for for jobs and for tangible benefits. Yeah. And I mean, there there is yeah. a theory that w with Brexit, mm. I mean, Northern Ireland could mm. be could find a rules almost like an ar arbitrage, you know, of like a yeah. conduit. Yeah. for like the republic into mm -hmm. europe or for uk into europe yeah. so we, we could you know think creatively how we could we could be like the hong kong of <laughs> europe somewhere you know uh -huh. yeah. uh, acting as, as a gateway between two systems you know yeah yeah indeed indeed mm -hmm. um, yeah. um sorry you're gonna no go ahead yeah and just on your your day job as a, an executive coach now if you were advising uh, Michelle O'Neill or, or Arlene Foster, I mean, what, what would you, or even maybe keep it general to any leader in Northern Ireland, I mean, what, what would you be advising them of, of hard, what they should be looking at or, or doing? Yeah, yeah. Um, so the general advice that I would give to political leaders would be really to, to work hard on that engagement bit um, rather than selling a brochure of features and benefits listen to people's needs what are their fears how can you allay those fears um what makes them tick and see the commonality between the the two of you um so paraphrasing john hume again um there's more that divide that, that uh, connects us than divides us and so using that experience that, that people have, have, have had in discovering each other uh, post-troubles, um, or discovering each other more post-troubles in terms of their needs and, and hopes, uh, we have the same situation right across the world. Uh, so closing that gap between yourself and your prospective investors, prospective partners, whatever they may be, um, is much, much easier than, than you might think. Okay. So, and it's, it, it's all around. So yeah. in, in practical terms, I mean, uh, that, that essentially means, you know, nationalism, listening to unionism, unionism, listening to nationalism and, and actually listening, not just kind of tokenism or, you know, um, actually engaging 
with people to listen because yeah. because mm-hmm. listening yeah. is i think it, it's 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 quite a hard skill especially maybe in the west where we don't really listen we just kind of wait for a pause in the conversation so we can just continue what we want to say mm-hmm. yeah so basically are we listening to understand or are we simply listening to respond yeah okay that's a very good point um Mm. Okay. Now, any other general advice that you would give any community or, or business leaders in Northern Ireland? I mean, do you think there should be kind of new opportunities or should we be less insular and be looking abroad to trade more or to, to work with other countries or exports? Mm. I certainly think that um, the onus will be um, post-Brexit um there will be an onus on people um in the uk in northern ireland as well there will be um opportunities especially in northern ireland i believe um because you do have the the access to to the the two blocks um to internationalize your, yourself in a way that um really appeals to your client base so in in terms of further localization of your service offering and that once again goes back to the conversations with with your prospective clients um, and understanding their needs Um, in that respect um, we could leverage the growing diversity in in even northern ireland for example and uh, medium-sized organizations might find it useful to hire people who don't look like themselves mm-hmm. and look more like their prospective clients or existing clients in order to um, up their uh, customer service game up their um, uh, product or service offering for example mm-hmm. If that makes sense. It does. I mean, it essentially means uh, being open mm-hmm. to new opportunities and the kind of listening to customers and to be aware of, of potential new markets or, or new products that you can mm-hmm. be responding to, really. Yeah. 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 And be more aware of your own blind spots, too. Um, we all have blind spots, and um, it, it might be useful for organizations to even, you know, uh, Get a get a foreign student from um, their target market, for example, mm-hmm. for a couple of days to come in and, and just um, look at the organization, speak with the people and identify what sort of blind spots there might be in the organization. Okay. That would certainly be quite a cost effective way of doing it. Yeah. I'm trying to get how you how you phrase that. So it's kind of it's not not necessarily arrogance, but just kind of because I, I I think sometimes we, we we are a bit arrogant, assuming you know well we know better or we know what will work in the markets mm-hmm. when 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 you don't mm-hmm. and it, and it, you you have to kind of have that yeah. local knowledge and listening experience mm-hmm. to kind of to see what what will work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think we're going very much from uh, the make it and they will buy. Um, so like build it and they will come mentality of the 20th century to a 21st century, which uh, preference, which will be all around 
customization, localization, yeah? and that will be very much um, customer driven. A useful metaphor for that might be Israeli IT companies mm-hmm. um, who uh, very much do their product testing um, for their releases with the customer base. And so the customer does a lot of the um, a lot of the hard yards, if you like, in terms of getting the product ready for market. Um, whereas you have somewhere like Japan, for example, where the product has to be absolutely perfect and tested and tested and tested um, before you release it. And by the time you've released it, well, the Israeli company has already had um, 300 iterations of, of the product. It's been on the market uh, as a, a finally a perfect product for six months. Um, and you find that... Uh, you're uh, uh, Johnny come lately. Because hmm. I know it, so, in, in my business yeah. of, of kind of websites and internet work uh, is, mm. is a saying a uh, minimal yeah. viable product, you know, just do the absolute bare minimum. Exactly. You can yeah. uh, satisfy the customer yeah. and, and, yeah. and build on it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, how, however, MVP is not really um, a very respected term in Japan. Mm. Uh, where people go for more for perfectionism, yeah. um, which which can be a structural uh, weakness for an organization, of course. Okay. Yeah. Um, just as, as we as we finish up, um, sometimes yeah. we we like to ask our contributors: Is there any kind of books, podcasts, TV shows, anything you'd recommend people could check out that you, you find mm. interesting recently or may help? Yeah. Yeah. Um, something that I shared with you earlier, Brian, when we were discussing the podcast, um, is the work of uh, Geert Hofstede, and I've, I've probably made a total hems of, mm-hmm. of the pronunciation. Um, and if you go to Hofstede.com, yes, so he's that's the Dutch. Uh, H-R-H-O-F-S-T-E-D-E.com. Mm-hmm. Once again, h o f s t e d e dot com, mm-hmm. and if you look for a country comparison within that, uh, then you've got a very useful tool to compare half a dozen uh, cultural dimensions. He calls them um, between different countries, and there's a whole slew of countries that you can compare the business cu- cultures between. Um, so things like risk aversion to individuality, um, how hierarchical is the organize, is the country, for example, and organizations within the country. Yeah. Um, and another one on that point would be the culture map uh, by Aaron Meyer. And this is one of the, um, if, for people who would be interested in the cult- cross-cultural uh, bit. Um, so the the catchphrase for for this particular um, book is breaking through the invisible boundaries of global business. I think mm-hmm. this is very very useful. Um, Aaron Meyer talks about how people think, lead, and get things done uh, between the different cultures. Yeah. Excellent. That's uh, good recommendations. Aaron um, Meyer, uh, mm-hmm. Meyer, M-E-Y-E-R. 
Okay, I'll we'll put uh, we'll put some links on the post for okay. those books. Um, okay. That's great, Thanks. Michael. So it's gonna be it's gonna be a while before we see you back in uh-huh. Belfast. I take it. It might be, yeah, yeah. Um, let's let's get COVID over and uh, yeah. Well, well, maybe I'll see you soon. maybe the next time we'll see yeah, you, we'll we'll meet up for a, a, a pint in the in the Urgle or wherever. Ah, that sounds great. Yeah, your uh-huh. your bar of choices in the Oak. Um, so uh-huh. that's uh, Michael McCoy, um, all the way from Tokyo, who is an executive coach. Thanks very much, Brian. If you have enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe and give us a review, and we'll see you next time on the Slugger Podcast. Thank you. The Slugger Tool podcast is sponsored by Queen's University Belfast. Researchers at Queen's are at the heart of supporting global efforts to understand the coronavirus. To discover more about their research, please visit qeb.ac.uk.